Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. You know, this the idea of free will, that we're free to make moral decisions, that we're free to act, um, this is just kind of basic. We, that's the way we think. It's hard to get away from the idea. If somebody says that you're not really free or that somehow all of your actions or your decisions are predetermined in some way, whether it's from God or whether it's from uh, genetics, whether it's from the environment or any kind of causation other than your agency, your free will agency, uh, people are shocked. And yet, in the field of philosophy, this uh, problem, what's sometimes called the free will problem, is enduring uh, and it continues on in in modern uh, philosophy. So no matter how familiar the idea of being in control of our actions might appear, it's actually a much more uh, subtle. If you try to articulate why that's the case, it becomes much more difficult. Join me right now to talk about the idea of free will and its relationship to blame, uh, crime, uh, moral responsibility, is Professor Thomas Pink. He teaches philosophy at King's College in London. He's the author of many books, including Free Will, A Very Short Introduction. We talked with Professor Pink about why Catholic teaching is increasingly embarrassing to church leaders, and we may hearken back to that topic, too, as we go on here. But, uh, Professor Pink, it's great to have you with me. Thanks. It's great to be here, too, Al. Thanks. Let's let's talk about this. Again, I think most of us are shocked to believe that there's actually a very serious, long-engaged conversation about whether human beings are, quote, free, whether we have free will, whether our actions are free, whether our moral decision-making is free, and uh, whether we're, in fact, in control of what we do. It seems self-evident to, I think, most of us. Why is there a debate about it? Well, the problem has changed over the centuries. In the Middle Ages, the problem was, in a way, to do with God. The thought was that um, if God knows in advance exactly how we're going to act, then our freedom to do otherwise starts looking as though it's a kind of freedom to prove God wrong. Mm. All along he's expected us to do one thing. How can we uh, be free to do another? So God's capacity to know of our actions in advance and his immutability, he doesn't change, seems to lock us in to a particular action. So that was so a, that's one that was one way of looking at the problem, huh? In the Middle Ages, yeah. And there's actually another side to it, which becomes very important at the Reformation. And it's this: our ability to control our actions seems to be linked to our rationality, our capacity to reason. It's it's something that we have, but the lower animals don't possess. Mm, mm-hmm. 
it's not up to my cat whether or not it chases mice. That's what cats do. It's instinct. Right, right. But one, one thing that Christians have always believed in is that we are a fallen race, that human beings have in some way degraded from the uh, natural order for which God created them. And particularly at the Reformation, a very radical view was taken of this fall, particularly in Calvinism, so that it almost was seen as removing our freedom altogether. Mm -hmm. We were no longer free to do the right thing. We were bound to sin. So this idea of God's omniscience, uh, which Catholics share, and then a very radical view of the fall led to a theological problem about human freedom. There's also yes, yeah, so yeah. Not, and, but there's also the philosophical problem dealing with cause uh, material causation. That's right, and that problem becomes very important in the 17th century. So people like Thomas Hobbes think that the universe is just material, and every event in it is causally determined. So we're bound, we're a material universe bound by rigid deterministic laws. So it's causally determined by past material events, exactly what actions you're going to perform. And then uh, the thought is we're not free to act otherwise because it's already fixed or causally determined how we're going to act. Does this end up making a mockery of blame, criminal justice, people being guilty for their crimes? It might do if, if these forms of skepticism, um, these reasons for not believing in human freedom were good ones. Bear in mind, though, that um, there's more than one way of understanding blame, and there's more than one way of understanding punishment. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I think that we can only be to blame for what we control. Mm-hmm. And we can only truly deserve punishment for what we are truly morally responsible for, which again is what we control. Things outside our control are not our responsibility, and we can't be to blame for them. But a lot of philosophers like Hobbes and, and, and later successors tried to um, reinterpret what blame and punishment are all about so that they would make sense even in a, a universe where we weren't free. And the reinterpretation works like this. Blame just comes down to thinking that you're bad. Um, and then they say, well, I can think of people as bad. I can think of vases or ugly ornaments as bad, but they're not free. All that thinking of someone as bad involves is thinking of them as defective mm-hmm. uh, in some way. And punishment, well, that's simply treating people in a way that's unpleasant to them, but has good consequences. It, it reforms them or it deters other people from doing the bad thing that they did. And looked at that way, Blame and punishment don't require freedom. Hmm. Uh, in modern psychology, uh, is, is there a consensus about 
freedom, libertarian type freedom, uh, or have we become, or is modern psychology largely deterministic these days? I think that there's probably a fair amount of general confusion. Okay. So I think a lot of people who uh, uh, see themselves as scientists tend to be skeptical about freedom. So, I mean, I think we need to go back and look at whether all these objections to freedom really work. Well, let's do, let's take do that. God's not, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. Uh, let's, let's move in that direction. Take, take then. God's foreknowledge. One way of looking at, at, at God's foreknowledge is this. God lives in a world outside time. Mm-hmm. He lives timelessly. So that it's not as if um, he foresees what we're about to do at some past time. His knowledge of what we do is a sort of timeless contemplation of it. And it's, it's really sort of simultaneous with uh, the actions that he foreknows. And that means that we shouldn't see God's uh, knowledge of what we'll do as something that's locked in a past time, which somehow uh, prevents us from being free to pr- us from being free to change our minds. That's the wrong way to look at it. Again, we shouldn't look at the fall as removing uh, our humanity to the extent of locking us into inevitable sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We still remain free. Certainly, the Catholic Church teaches yes. even after the fall. It's just that our freedom is impaired, it's lessened, but it's right. not removed entirely. Right, right, right. Um, Again, if you... Sorry. No, I was going to oh, say, um, it, it, I keep going with, with the theological dimension of this, uh, because that, that, it has a, that has its own kind of shape uh, compared to yeah. causal determinism later, or material determinism. Well, yeah. I think that... Um, there's also a certain complexity within the Catholic tradition. People, you know, talk about the free will problem as a battle between two opposing positions. One is called compatibilism, which says that our action, our freedom of action is compatible with uh, our actions being predetermined. Mm-hmm. And the other is incompatibilism, which, as the name suggests, says that our freedom of action, our control of our actions, is incompatible with them being determined in advance. Okay. So, and a lot of people think, well, if, yeah. So, for, so this, I mean, religious, is freedom of action consistent with uh, causal determinism? That, that's the question, right? That is the question, but I think that the simple way we understand it now, particularly in secular philosophy, doesn't do justice to the complexity uh, with which Catholic theology has historically understood it. Ah, okay. So if you look at uh, medieval thinkers uh, like St. Thomas, uh, Aquinas, or others, um, they would have agreed that if a material object or a material event predetermines our actions, we wouldn't be free. But what about if God predetermines that we will do the right thing? 
Hmm. So God, uh, supposing God predestines us to sal- salvation, and on the basis of that predestination of us to salvation, wills or decrees that we do the right thing, is that consistent with our being free to do otherwise or not? And in the Middle Ages, you'll get very different views. Hmm. Okay. Okay. People, followers of St. Thomas, uh, very often introduce theories of what they call uh, free motion, in which uh, God can foreordain that we will do the right thing while leaving us free. To do it. God has made us free, and as the author of our freedom, he's predetermining us to do the right thing, can't take our freedom away. Got you. Uh, Hold it there, if you would, Professor Pink. I've got to take a break. We'll come back and pick it up right there uh, from the free will tradition in the Middle Ages, uh, and St. Thomas in particular. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Professor Thomas Pink, who teaches philosophy at King's College in London. We're looking at the problem of free will. He's the author of Free Will, a very short introduction, as well as other uh, other work. We were talking uh, before the break about the Catholic understanding of uh, freedom, uh, whether if in God's omniscience, uh, knowing how we will decide, uh, does that mean that we are not free to decide otherwise? And you were taking us to resolve this question. Uh, conflict, this apparent conflict uh, before the break. Um, so why don't you pick it up from there and tell us how does St. Thomas understand the relationship between God's omniscience and uh, his own uh, understanding of the future and what we would call our voluntary action, which seems to be able to resist God. Well, I I was suggesting that uh, one view you can take of this is that um, God's um, understanding and knowledge uh, of what we do is um, something simultaneous uh, to our doing of it, Mm -hmm. because God doesn't exist in time as we do, and all times in history are present to him. Mm -hmm. That means that um, it's not as if uh, his foreknowledge of what we do is something that um, exists in the past, fixing us what right. we do uh, uh, in advance. It's simultaneous with uh, uh, what we do. Um, what is true is that we are free to do, to do otherwise. And if we uh, had exercised that freedom, which we haven't, because we're doing what we're actually doing, then God would just have had a different belief about what we're doing. But his his belief that we're doing what we're actually doing isn't fixing in advance what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, his for, his it's, foreknowledge, it's, though, he's, he's, is, is he able to... Is he then just, might say, quicker at anticipating where we're going? I, I, I think the right thing to say is that his understanding uh, of... Uh, what we are doing is almost simultaneous with it. Yes. Um, but precedes there was never it. A time, there was never a time when uh, uh, he did not know what we would do. But it's not a datable 
uh, because God lives outside time, right. his, his having a belief about us isn't a datably past event, which, once it's fixed, uh, precludes us later doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Okay. It doesn't relate to us like a past event relates to us. No, is it... Because is... It's, he, he's, not, he's not existing in a past time. He's existing in a timeless eternity. Yes, yes. Kind of an eternal now, I guess, of some sort here. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Um, now, is that the dominant view uh, among Catholic thinkers uh, in the medieval scholastic period? I think it's a very common view. Um, you could um, uh, adopt a view according to which um, uh, I think that's probably the dominant view. You could um, adopt a view which emphasized uh, God's foreknowledge of our actions as involving his predetermining them and then try and argue for a view which left our freedom to do otherwise consistent with divine predetermination of what we do. Mm-hmm. And that's the line of thought you also get. It's highly controversial, and in the early seventeenth, in the early seventeenth to late sixteenth centuries, you get Catholic views that are much more like what we think of now as modern as, as modern forms of incompatibilism. Okay. That uh, resist the view that God can determine uh, what we do and still leave, leave us free to act otherwise. And one particular order, uh, uh, religious order, is associated with this incompatibilist view that rules out divine predetermination of our actions to preserve our freedom, and that would be the Jesuit order. Right. And right. Jesuit thinkers like Luis de Molina uh, are very, very clear in their mind that... Um, uh, there's no way that human freedom, the human freedom to do otherwise, could in any way be consistent with God predetermining our actions. Well, and that leads to a huge debate in the 16th and 17th centuries between uh, Dominican followers of, as they say, it, St. Thomas, mm-hmm. and Jesuit followers of people like Molina. And it's known as the Deoxilius De- controversy, and it's really a controversy about whether human freedom is completely incompatible with all forms of predetermination or not. Did the Church decide to resolve that conflict? Did the teaching authority, or did we, we leave it unresolved? Paul V famously decrees uh, at the end of the, uh, the succession of, of meetings uh, uh, of a congregation in Rome to look at the Deoxilis problem, on divine helps, uh, 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 divine grace. Um, and he decrees that people are not to discuss the matter. <laughs> he won't resolve it, and no one is to accuse opponents of heresy. Okay. okay. Uh, so there was a sort of truce which has held ever since. Okay. Um, so it's never been resolved. As, as, a, as a professional philosopher, are you comfortable with that? I am fairly... Um, I think that um, the whole issue of the compatibility 
of freedom with various forms of predetermination is extremely complex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we haven't sorted it out. I think um, one reason is that we've not yet found a way of, sol of, of, of even working out how the problem would be solved. Mm -hmm. We don't have a sort of um, a, a methodology, a sort of uh, a route map towards a solution. Can I say something about why that might be? Yeah, please. I mean, from the standpoint, I mean, from, from the standpoint of just uh, kind of a naive understanding of these things, people on the one hand believe that they're free, but they also know that things are caused. And so even at the most popular level, there's uh, an un oftentimes an unrecognized conflict here because we're equally convinced that we're free, but we also know that we're that things are caused. We just don't know the degree to which we're <laughs> our choices are caused. Is, I think absolutely. I, you know, and, and so this is part that's, of the. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two two things to say about that. First of all, um, people talk about causal determinism. But no one has actually ever shown that um, our actions and decisions really are so causally determined as to leave no chance of us doing anything different. Right. No one's actually shown that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The second point to make is that you, causes needn't be determining. Um, you can have causes that simply influence without determining outright and they're sometimes called probabilistic causes they make their effects probable but without rendering them certain you know if i if i throw a really heavy brick at the window you know exactly what's going to happen right it's going to determine the window breaks but supposing the window is quite strong and the brick is a bit weak it's a bit light Maybe it's 50-50 whether the window will break. Right. And there could be just irreducible chancy causes, which do sometimes produce effects, but when they do, don't determine them. They just influence them. And again, no one has shown that the world isn't irreducibly chancy. Right. right. It might be. Um, the other thing is... Sorry. Well, I was going to say, is there when we talk about human behavior, we talk about behavior being caused, but what about, uh, are causes the same as reasons? In other words, I, I might choose to do something based on a list of reasons that I have for why I ought to do this. Uh, am I acting then out of reasons that I have, or am I acting out of kind of non-rational, impersonal causes? I think that, again, philosophers don't really agree about that one. Okay. Nowadays, philosophers tend to think that anything that influences our actions, including a reason, must be a cause. But that's not obviously true. Not if you mean by a cause, something like a brick hitting a window. Right. Right. something material or very light material things. Um, because actually, the way we think about reasons 
isn't obviously like that. Right. When you act for a reason, I think a traditional idea, deep in the Catholic tradition, is that you don't have a material cause operating here. What you have, if it's a good reason, particularly, is something more like a, a kind of attraction that's not ordinary physical causation. It's the kind of attraction goodness has over us. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's an attraction exercised over us by a value. That it's not like being hit by a brick. Um, and in the scholastic tradition, which is the Catholic tradition uh, 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 based on Aristotle uh, and involving uh, thinkers like Aquinas, um, people would talk about um, something that they called final causation. They'd use the word causation, but they were using it in an Aristotelian sense. Mm, and what okay. they meant by that was uh, when we're moved by reason to do things, what happens is there is an attractive force exercised over us by goodness itself, mm-hmm. which uh, moves us not through ordinary causation, but by a kind of normative attraction mm-hmm. um, uh, to aim at the good. So there's a, a reason. There's a teleology to this. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a teleological relationship, mm-hmm. and a uh, reason is something good about an action that attracts us to perform yeah, it. Yeah. And in a sense, it's a, it's a sort of uh, particular case of, and a finite case, of the same force that God will exercise over us in heaven, but as goodness in infinite form. Mm, yes. And, and so, so that's a very different way of looking at reasons than seeing them as ordinary causes. That's, that's right. Uh, Professor, we're just about out of time here. Uh, what would you suggest people reading to pursue this question? Well, you could do worse than just read, actually, Thomas Aquinas. Okay. <laughs> and you could look at the, the, the first part of the second part of the summer. There are lots of translations. Um, uh, and up to about the sort of question 20, and, and look at his discussion of human action. Very good. Very interesting. Thank you so much. Wonderful talking with you, and I greatly appreciate your work and your willingness to spend time with me. Thank you. Thanks, Al. Great talking. Professor Thomas Pink teaches philosophy at King's College in London. Today, we're looking at the question of free will or determinism.